Hey, my name is Amanda. I want to thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message inspires you, builds your faith, and helps you find your next step toward Jesus. Enjoy the message. In Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13, it says, Now that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along together? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses... In all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Good morning. Happy Easter. It is good to see you today. And uh, we get to join with uh, literally billions of people around this world to proclaim the greatest news that could possibly be proclaimed because the greatest enemy to humanity, death, was defeated on this day. And we get to share the good news, the amazing news that in Jesus uh, all who have faith in him will also rise as he rose again. And so the, the message of the resurrection is the greatest news that could possibly be shared. And I, I get to, to talk about that today. And what an honor. And we get to proclaim that. And all around the world, and for 2,000 years, people like me have stood before people like you and have proclaimed this message. And the leader up front has said, Christ is risen. And the people have responded, Christ is risen. Yes, he is. What a, what a joyful day. What a great thing to celebrate today. And uh, our Gospels that are in the New Testament that tell the life of Jesus, that tell the, the stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, all have stories about the resurrection and uh, uh, stories that took place that day on the first Easter, but also for 40 days, Jesus appeared to his disciples until the day of ascension. And I'm going to share my favorite of all the stories today. 
Uh, it is the one that you heard at the very beginning of the service. It's out of Luke chapter 24, and it's about uh, this uh, journey to Emmaus that two disciples take. I, I think it's, it's Luke's gospel is so well written, and I think it's some of his finest work, maybe his finest story, because the story has everything in it. It has, uh, it has the emotions, the sorrow, the sadness, the bewilderment, the gradual dawning of light, and the sudden um, um, realization, and a happy ending, and so much more. It's such a great, great story. Um, but at the end, really, it's a story of two people who were despondent, who lost hope, but who experienced hope reborn. And um, what's cool is that that's a story for us today, just like it was 2,000 years ago, because here's the deal, friends. When you walk with Jesus, you'll always have hope. You'll always have hope. Um, but it begins with the absence of hope, uh, despair, and despondency. So like I said, the story takes place on a, on a road between uh, Jerusalem and Emmaus. We're told it's about a seven-mile walk. And, and these two disciples, we're only given the name of one of them, Cleopas, and they're walking along. And they're joined by a stranger. Now, Luke tells us that it's Jesus. They are kept from recognizing him. What that really means, we don't know. God prevents them from seeing that it's really Jesus. And um, as the story goes on, you hear the despair because they're still living in the light of the cross on Friday. And they, they talk about Jesus and how uh, he was a prophet in word and deed, and he had done so many amazing things. And, and then they say, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Do you hear it in the voices? But we had hoped that he was the one. I mean, after all, uh, he healed people. He did miracles. He walked on water. He raised the dead. He spoke words that only could be spoken by God, and, and then he died, and they're, they're feeling it. You've been disappointed in life. You live long enough, you will be, and maybe you can relate. Maybe you've said things like that, but we'd hoped. We had hoped the tumor wasn't cancerous. We'd hoped the cancer wouldn't return. We had hoped the business would make it. We had hoped the money would hold out. We had hoped that the marriage would make it. We had hoped that our daughter would get into med school. We had hoped that mom wouldn't have to go in the nursing home. We had hoped that our, our son would stay sober. We've all been there. We know how that feels. We'd hoped that our team would win the World Series. <laughs> you know, Chicago Cub fans said that for 107 years in a row. <laughs> it's Easter. You've got to dig the Cubs. You've got to do something. You know what it is, though. Have disappointment. And you see it. And, and it, says, it says early on, as, as the description, when the stranger, Jesus, asked them, what are you talking about? It says they stood still, their faces downcast. You know, when you're with somebody who's lost hope, when you're with somebody who's discouraged, it shows, right? It, it's on their face. People you know really well, you can see immediately, oh, something's wrong. 
says their face was downcast. You know, hope is, and the loss of hope is not an emotion. It, it's something that affects everything. It affects us bodily. There's a, their book came out a number of years ago about trauma. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. And it talks about how trauma settles into your, the, the, your body. And, and it is, it's, it's visceral, it's, it's physical. That's why we say things like when we're discouraged or we have bad news, I, I was heartbroken. All right, my heart aches. Some of our hearts ached for the folks in Glen Allen this week, didn't it? Yeah. Or, or when we hear a bad report or bad news, we say, man, it was like a kick to the gut. Why? Because you just, you feel it. And that's what it is to be discouraged, to despair, to lose hope. Now, sometimes, sometimes, the loss of hope is because well, we put our hope in the wrong thing to begin with. Now here, um, as it says, you know, we had hoped, it says we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. You can understand, you may hear that as, oh, redemption is like forgiveness of sins. No, 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 they're not thinking that. They, they were thinking that the Messiah was going to be a powerful leader a military leader who was going to come to town, take names, kick butt, drive the Romans out, and restore the, the glorious uh, days, the golden era of David. Now, I get it. That, that belief, by the way, was widespread. Just about everybody in Judaism at that time believed that. And you can understand why. For 600 years, they suffered under oppression from foreign powers. Uh, it was first the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Greeks, then the worst of all, the Romans. They lost their freedom. They lost their freedom to worship like they wanted to. Some of the rulers were just cruel and heartless. Um, the taxes were high and the oppression was great and the suffering was unbearable for 600 years. I can't we can't imagine as Americans, we've not experienced that. Our country is 250 years old. This had been going on for 600 years. So, of course, they were hoping for a political solution. Of course, they were hoping for a military solution. And that's what they believed the Messiah was going to be. They, they thought the Messiah was going to destroy the pagans, not be killed by the pagans. They thought they were going to be relieved from suffering. They didn't imagine that they would be relieved and redeemed through suffering. And so they had been hoping for the wrong thing. God knew that there was something deeper. You've got to peel that onion back further, that the real problem's here. It's the human heart. The solution for humankind is spiritual because the problem is spiritual. And that had to be addressed. And so God doesn't send a military ruler. He sends a savior who will die for the sins of the world. Um, though our circumstances are different, we sometimes put our hopes in the wrong thing. Sometimes they're, they're good things, and we wind up disappointed because we placed our hope there. I believe there's only one who is worthy of your ultimate hope. Um, have you heard of this thing called the great resentment? It's kind of a thing now. 
a year, year and a half ago, it was the great resignation. A lot of people were quitting jobs and changing jobs and so forth and go to different jobs. Today, it's the great resentment. And what that's referring to is that there are a lot of people really unhappy in their jobs. There are a lot of people who are really, really disappointed in their jobs and are just kind of, you know, putting in the time and their heart's not in it. As much as one-third of the workforce is really unhappy with their job, would like to quit, but they're kind of uncertain about the economy, and so they're hanging on. It's about work-life balance. It's about working from home versus working in the office. It's, it's um, morale. All kinds of things are really plaguing the workforce right now. And I wonder if some of that resentment is because we expect too much from our jobs. My grandfather raised me, um, lived during the Great Depression. He would tell you that, that uh, for him, a, a job was provided a paycheck so he could feed his family. That's what he expected from a job. Today, we kind of expect that a job is going to make us happy and feel successful and give us meaning and purpose in life and be so fulfilling and that's wonderful. And, and, hey, you know, we have a staff here. We want this to be the very best workplace possible, and you do at your job as well. But I wonder if we just put too much on that, and we think that, that, li- that a job is going to make us happy. After all, don't they call it work? <laughs> and we get so crushed by that. Maybe we're putting too much hope in something that's not worthy of our hope. So these, these disciples have put their hope in Got a wrong solution. Well, that's the bad news. It gets really good after this. Because we see a couple really things, really amazing things here when we're struggling with a loss of hope. When you lose hope, you need a couple things. First, you need a bigger story. Sometimes we lose hope and get despair because our life is just wrapped up in us, and that's a small story. You need a bigger story. So so Jesus is walking with them again. They don't know that it's Jesus. And they talk for a while, and then after he asks some questions, and then he speaks to them, rebukes them. And then he says, and then Luke tells us, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, Here, it's Easter day. It's later in the afternoon. That morning was the morning of resurrection. And you would think, here are these two fellows, these two people walking along the road to Emmaus. And and I could picture it like this. Jesus shows up. He says, hey, I'm here. I'm alive. I'm back again. You know, don't have downcast faces. It's all good. He doesn't do that. What's he do? He takes them on a tour. He takes them to Israel's roots in the scriptures. And he begins to open the only Bible they knew at the time, what we call the Old Testament. He begins to open the Bible to them, book by book, story by story. He shows them that it was all pointing to him. You see, they had a bigger story, God's story. And um, we need a bigger story. 
So he takes them to the scriptures. I love how the Bible, the people at the Bible Project call it, they describe the Bible as it says, a, they, they call the Bible a unified story that leads to, all leads to Jesus. And it is a unified story. Sure, there's 66 books. You think, oh, well, this one's about this and one's about that. No, it's all telling the same story from Genesis to Revelation. And all of it is pointing to Jesus. Seven-mile walk. The average walking pace is about three miles an hour. So this walk would take someone normally a little over two hours. But I, I kind of think it takes longer because they're talking and pausing, reflecting, walk a little more. I bet it's a three- or four-hour walk. And on this walk, Jesus leads them in probably the most amazing Bible study that's ever been held. And I wonder if he begins with Genesis chapter 3. It's after the fall, after sin enters the picture, and God is, is giving consequences for the rebellion that just took place, and he turns to the serpent, the one who deceived Eve and Adam, and they ate the fruit, and he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and her offspring, and you will strike him on the heel, and he will crush your head. Many believe that's the very first reference to the Messiah because it's not offspring plural, it's singular, one person. Yes, serpent, you'll strike his heel, and that happened on Good Friday. But he's going to crush your head. I wonder if he then took him to the patriarchs in Judah, that the Messiah will be from the tribe of Judah, lion of the tribe of Judah, and takes him through the patriarchs. And then, then Exodus, and how Moses led them from slavery in Egypt to freedom to the wilderness and how Jesus takes them from the wilderness into the promised land. Yeah, I didn't misspeak. Jesus took them into the promised land. Oh, his name in Hebrew is Yeshua. Yeshua, if you translate it into English, is Joshua. If you take Yeshua, translate it into Greek, it becomes Iezus. If you take Iezus and take it into English, it's Jesus. He said, you know, the first Jesus took you into the promised land. I'm going to take you into a promised land even greater. And he tells them the story of Exodus. And then the book that everybody skips when they do the Bible in a year, he takes them into Leviticus. You skip that book, right? I have true confessions. Get about three chapters in. Oh, man. But Leviticus is rich with stuff that points to the Messiah. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Moses. See, Moses wrote those five books. It says, beginning with Moses, he shows them how it all is pointing to him. And he takes them to the prophets. Now, here's the thing. Jesus, as a Jewish boy, would have memorized the books of Moses. Do you know that? They, they memorized all five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Also would have memorized the Psalms. And so the prophets. So he's quoting this by, by memory. And, um, and he takes them to the prophets next. And you know, he's got to take them to Isaiah. Then Isaiah says, unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I wonder if he took him to that verse, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And then 
Surely, surely he took him to Isaiah 53. What a, what a passage, what a chapter. The author begins, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should behold him or beauty that we should be attracted to him. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced through for our transgression and the chastisement for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we're healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the servant, the Messiah, was to suffer all along and bear the sins of the people. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he does not open his mouth, and through his whole trial, Jesus never spoke his own defense. It says, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And when it came time for his body to be buried, it was Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy Pharisee, who took his body and buried it. Friends, this was 600 years before Jesus. Oh, it gets better. Surely he took him to the Psalms. Surely he took him to Psalm 22 because, after all, it was Psalm 22 that, that Jesus quoted on the cross. The first verse is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Read the rest of the chapter. Go home tonight. Read all of it. It'll give you goosebumps. As it describes the events that will happen a thousand years. This was written by David a thousand years before Jesus. Verse 7 all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That's exactly the stuff that was said at the cross. Oh, it gets even more amazing than that. What happens next is a very accurate description of what happens to a person physically when they are crucified. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. That's written a thousand years before Jesus. It's written hundreds of years before Rome was founded, hundreds of years before crucifixion was even dreamed up. A person who would be crucified, every bone in their body would be pulled out of joint, out of socket. They would suffer severe dehydration. And um, he says, they pierced my hands and my feet. A thousand years before? 
And then they cast lots for my clothing. That's exactly what happened. Now, why would God go to such lengths? There are 350 prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. But not just that, the whole story does. Why? Because God wanted to be crystal clear. This could only happen if God did it. Only God can predict the future. Only God can say this will happen. And he wants us to be sure and know that this is from the hand of God. And so Jesus takes them through methodically over three hours of telling the story, the deep roots. You need a bigger story. But not only that, when you, when you lose hope, you need a companion for the journey. Life is a long journey. And there are hard seasons and hard paths to walk. What you need is a companion. And it's easy to get lost. You know, how about you? If you give me the opportunity, you give me directions somewhere, you can tell me, I'll forget it. It won't do me any good. Give me a map? Okay, physical map? If you're under 30, talk to somebody later about what that means. <laughs> GPS, great. Better yet, give me somebody who knows how to get there and put them in the car with me. Ah, that's, that's the best. And you know, Jesus is that guide. And I love, and one of the reasons I love this story, I think Emmaus, the story of the walk to Emmaus, is a, is a picture of the Christian life. We walk with Jesus. Christians will say, hey, how's your walk with the Lord going? It's life, and we walk through it with him. Um, we need someone like this. First, you know what we need? We need someone who's going to ask us good questions. Like I said, Jesus shows up, and the first thing he does is he asks them a question. He's, they're, they're talking, and Jesus pulls up and says, oh, what are you talking about? And they look at him. Like, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened? The things that have happened there this past weekend? And Jesus said, what things? I love that. He kind of shows a little bit of the playfulness of Jesus. He knew but he asks them questions. And then they go in this long thing about, about Jesus of Nazareth, a, a prophet mighty in word and deed, and how our leaders had him killed, and, 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 and we had hoped that he would be the one. And, and then there's these stories emerging from this morning. The women said the, the body is missing, and uh, some claim they had a vision of angels, and we don't know what's going on. And he just lets them talk. But he first asks good questions. You know, this was Jesus' MO, it's how he did it always. In the Gospels, he asked over 350 questions. On 183 occasions, Jesus is asked a question by other people. Do you know that on all but three occasions, he responds with another question? Only three times does he give a direct answer to the questions that are asked him. He responds back with a question. Oh, what do you think? He's always asking questions. Interesting, when God shows up after the fall, what's the very first thing he does? He asks questions. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? It seems to be the way of God to ask questions. Now, you know, what, you know what happens when you ask questions? The person on the receiving end of the question, all of a sudden, their brain, a different part of their brain kicks in as now they have to engage. It's a, way, it's a wonderful way to get, have conversation. You engage. 
Right now, you're, you're kind of passive listening to me talk. If I, if I said, okay, now, I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to ask him this question. All of a sudden, a different part of your brain would kick in. Now, I know some of you introverts, your palms are getting sweaty. I'm not going to ask you to do that right now, okay? <laughs> Promise. I'm not going to have you do that. Um, but if I did, all of a sudden, a different part of your brain would kick in, and you'd have conversation with the person. Jesus asks questions all the time. You know what asking questions also does? It shows interest in the other person. When I ask a question, I'm showing curiosity and interest. It was Jesus' way of, of honoring people. And so he asked questions. Um, what are you talking about? What things? And he lets them talk. You need somebody to ask you some good questions. That's the kind of companion you need on the journey. You also need someone who'll tell you the truth, even when the truth is a little hard to hear. So he lets him talk, and then he, uh, he speaks a hard word to him, but a word they needed. It says, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Friends, you need a companion who'll speak the truth to you. And sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes um, we need to be asked a question and we need to be told something um, not that we want to hear, but that we need to hear. And so he says, how foolish you are. You, you've read, but you haven't read with insight how slow of heart you are to believe all that God has said. Now, the, the heart in the first century um, meant something probably different than what you and I think. One of my commentaries said it this way, that the, the heart is the inner commitments, dispositions, and attitudes that determines one's life. It's, it's the center of our being, and it's where we really choose to believe stuff or not. The problem was they had heard Jesus but they didn't embrace his teaching. They knew what he taught, they just didn't apply it. This is called the information age. We've got all kinds of information, right? You can get all the information you ever need, just Google it. But are we wiser? Do we have wisdom? Um, we know the teachings of Jesus, do we obey? There's an old word for you. Does our obedience match our knowledge? You know, truth is, some days, I just need the Spirit of God to say how slow of heart you are, Ron. You know what God said about this. You know what he said in his word. You need to believe it. You need a companion who will tell you the truth. Now, I'm going to go on and read a little beyond the Scripture reading that was done for us earlier because the story continues in verse 28. It says, As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Sound familiar? Hmm. Jesus takes this whole journey to Emmaus and then he enters their house. Friends, you need a companion who will make the whole journey with you. 
all the way to the end who won't leave you in the hard times, who will be there always. I think that's why Psalm 23 is the most beloved of all of the Psalms. You know, David wrote it and saw the same image of, of the good shepherd. You know the, you know the Psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Uh, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you're with me, your rod and your staff that comfort me. See, you need somebody who will be with you uh, in the, when the grass is green and the water is sparkling and beautiful and life is good, and then you need somebody with you to lead you in the paths of righteousness, what's good and holy before God. And then someone who will walk with you in the darkest valleys and walk with you in the valley that all of us will have to walk one day, the valley of the shadow of death. And he will walk with you the whole way to the end. This is our God. This is what he does. And then going back to the story. So he's giving him bread, which is unusual. He's the, he's the guest in the house and he's taking the role of the host. And he breaks bread just like he did on that last supper night. Gives it to them. Then read this. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, we're not a heart's Burning within us. While he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to it. I love that verse. Because when the word of God comes to you, it burns in your heart. You recognize the words though? It says, and their eyes were opened. That phrase occurs one other time in scripture at the very beginning of this story. Oh, at the very beginning when Eve and Adam are deceived by the serpent and they eat the fruit and it says then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves they were promised that if they eat this fruit they're going to become like God just reach out you grab it you'll become as great as God and they did and it wasn't great that moment ushered in all of the evil Pain, suffering, and destruction that this world has known ever since. But on this day, see, that was the first, that, you know that time when, when, when they eat the fruit? That's the first time we're told they ate. Now they ate before that, but it's the first time in Scripture that we're told of a meal. That's the first meal of creation, and it ushers in death and destruction. And now this is the first time that Jesus eats after the resurrection, this is the first meal of the new creation. You know what he's doing? He's redeeming their story. Their eyes were open, and this time they saw Jesus. The hope of the world. The resurrected one. We need someone who will redeem our story. Because our story can become so hard. I have a good friend. He's pastor of a church in South Florida. 
And on the night that Hurricane Ian was coming ashore right there in his backyard, he gets a call from his son. His son lives nearby, but he was away working about nine hours away uh, for the week. And he can hardly understand his son because he's sobbing. And finally he gets out the words, Dad, my wife just told me she wants a divorce. She's leaving me. Now he says he's... He was completely blindsided. The whole family was blindsided by that. Nobody saw it coming. It was a bolt out of the blue, and he's broken. And my friend said, I'll be right there. And so as the hurricane winds are coming ashore, he and his wife get in their car. They drive nine hours north, and they get to their son early, early in the morning. And when it gets there, he collapses in his dad's shoulders and just sobs and sobs. My friend consoling his son. And over the past few months, we've walked with each other through this, man, our group. And he, as he's walked with his son through this really, really hard road. Well, last month, they, uh, they took a trip to Israel together, and his dad led the trip, and um, he went on the trip too. And, and his dad baptized his son in the Jordan River. And this is uh, what happens immediately after. Look at the smile. Look at the smile on his face. Now, what my friend didn't know, but his son told him a week later when they got back from the trip, he said, Dad, when I came out of the water, the Spirit of God spoke to me. I, I, I didn't hear a voice, but it was like I did. And he said, I'm washing away your tears and sadness in the Jordan River. It's now time to step into a season of repair and new beginnings. And he was beaming. Because you see, he walked with Jesus and he was there with him all of that horrible journey, restoring his hope. What about you? Let me ask you a question. Have disappointments caused you to lose sight of Jesus? It's easy in the disappointing days of life to get our eyes off of him. Has that caused you to lose sight of Jesus? I want you to know he will walk with you if you'll let him. Some of you walked with Jesus regularly and faithfully, and maybe you've gotten out of that rhythm. He wants to walk with you still because when you walk with Jesus, you'll always have hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have come to redeem our story. You suffered and died and rose again so we could be redeemed, made right with you. And thank you that you walk with us, just like you walked with those disciples on that road to Emmaus. You're here to walk with us. Thank you, Lord. I pray for those especially who maybe aren't walking closely with you these days. I pray, Jesus, that they would invite you back in and that they would see you. I pray for the, those who are hurting, discouraged right now. May they see you, Jesus. This we pray in your name. If you enjoyed today's message, make sure to subscribe to this channel. Feel free to share this with others that God has put on your heart. To learn more about LaCroix Church or to find your next steps, head to lacroixchurch.org. Thanks again for checking us out, and we hope to see you soon.